Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along I've been inspired by the strong example and work of Mohandas K. Gandhi, also known as Mahatma Gandhi, Great Soul, at various times throughout my 62-year life but it seems that each time I get exposed to Gandhi's work, that there is another deeper, more impressive layer to be uncovered. We're going to be talking about a recent book, The Gandhian Iceberg, a Nonviolence Manifesto for the Age of the Great Turning, with its author, Chris Moore Backman. Chris has a couple decades of activism and training folks for activism under his belt, and this marvelous book is a great and inspirational step forward for all who choose to encounter it. Chris Moore Backman joins us via Skype from Chico, California. Chris, I'm really excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Mark. It's great to be here. Your book, The Gandhian Iceberg, is a real treasure. Even though it's 240 pages of reading, if you don't read the footnotes, which I actually sometimes do, it's a very easy read, yet it's so deep in terms of content. How long did it take you to put the book together? Well, Mark, it depends on when you start counting. I can say it either took 11 months or it took 20 years, <laughs> depending on when you start the clock. <laughs> I would say the content for the book was 20 years in the making, but the actual writing process was about 11 months from beginning to that final period. I'm going to ask you to start off this interview, Chris, by reading The Long-Term Vision, which you share right near the end of the book on page 231 out of 240, because I want to share where all of this is headed. And there's quite a road to be traveled to get there. And I'm wondering how long it took you to be clear on where you were headed. Was this the fruit of the 20 years of lead-in work and thought? I would say, in a way, yes. And yet the concept of the movement of movements, which is in there, and the great turning, these were ideas that were introduced to me, I would say, more within the last five years or so. So I think I would put the time frame more in that sort of ballpark. Okay. At least 15 years into it, there really is a lot of learning and experience manifest in this vision. So would you please share the long-term vision leading to the culminating outline at the end of the book? Would you read it for folks? Sure. This is the proposed vision I offer up to the emerging movement of movements. We are a movement of movements united by love, rooted in nonviolence, driven by our thirst for justice, wholeness, and redemption, and committed to giving our full effort and service to the great turning, the apocal shift from our current industrial growth society to a truly just and life-sustaining society. 
That is really a powerful vision, especially if folks understand all the various components of it. Nonviolence, a lot of folks really don't have a clear idea what that is. The great turning, and even the current industrial growth society. These are things that are unpacked throughout the book. I feel kind of like we could use a Chris-made dictionary immediately at hand to help us conduct this conversation today. Like, when you start talking about Swaraj and other Gandhian terms, a lot of our listeners are not going to know what they are. But we're going to dive right into the deep waters and assume that we'll pick up enough of the vocabulary and fake the rest that people will at least get the gist of the conversation. And they'll all get it if they read The Gandhian Iceberg. It'll be a bit of a sink-or-swim experience diving into the deep like that. But that's a big part of what you say in the book, Chris, is that we are on a precipice. We don't have time now to just do prep and carefully pull this stuff together, although we need to do the prep. I feel the tension between those two imperatives. So let's start out with the title of the book, The Gandhian Iceberg, and the subtitle, A Nonviolence Manifesto for the Age of the Great Turning. As to the iceberg, you start out with a couple different diagrams of the interrelation of a few of the key elements of Gandhian thought, of Gandhian practice, but you say that iceberg is a better symbolic representation. Tell us what you're talking about there. Sure. Yeah, the book is basically organized around a three-part description of Gandhi's approach to nonviolence. And initially, when that three-part approach was introduced to me, I used a visual of a Venn diagram with three circles. And in one of those circles is the area that Gandhi called self-purification. This is the aspect of the approach to nonviolence that is all about what happens for us at the level of the individual. In my own personal life, what am I doing to try to bring my deepest principles and commitments into alignment with my behavior? So that's self-purification. And then the second circle is what Gandhi called constructive program, which is the work of building the new society within the shell of the old. This is where we get out into the community and we try to bring into existence the society that we long to live in. And then the third sphere is nonviolent resistance, what Gandhi called satyagraha. That's where we actually engage with the forces of empire, where we challenge the domination system head on. So these three spheres were initially introduced to me by a woman named Joanne Sheehan who had discovered them in reading Gene Sharp's work and also Robert Burroughs' work where they had initially sort of distilled these three areas as a helpful way of describing what Gandhi was up to and what he was teaching and doing. So what I ended up doing with that Venn diagram was transferring those three aspects onto a diagram of an iceberg. It's a simple diagram if you picture the conventional metaphorical use of the iceberg where you you see the tip of the iceberg is that part that juts out above the water and then the solid, you know, more substantial mass of, of ice underwater. I tweaked it just a little bit by making the tip of the part that's above water, I call that the tip of the iceberg, and the majority of the ice above water leaves room for a second category. So all to say that if you visualize an iceberg and a water line, you know, dividing the ice above water and below water, all of that ice underwater, that huge mass, is self-purification. And then above the water is constructive program. And then the tip that juts out above water 
we might think of it as the tip of the tip of the iceberg. That's Satyagraha, the nonviolent resistance aspect. And the reason I like using the iceberg was that while the Venn diagram showed the interconnection where the circles overlap with each other, the iceberg shows that all three of these parts are part of one indivisible chunk of ice. The parts of the iceberg don't merely overlap. They're completely intertwined with one another. And I think that's, that's true to Gandhi and his understanding that there was no separating the work of self-purification from head-on resistance with empire or the constructive building up of the society at the village level, that all those were deeply intertwined, not just in a strategic sense, but also in a spiritual sense for us as individuals. So I began using this iceberg diagram as I was teaching about Gandhi's approach in workshops around the country, and people really responded to it. So it became sort of the basis of the book, where I, I spend one chapter describing all that's sort of common to the entire iceberg, and then I spend three chapters, each one looking at those three different elements, one at a time. And then chapter five, the last chapter of the book, I try to pull it all together by making some proposals, which includes that proposal for an overarching vision for the movement of movements. I use chapter five to make various proposals as to how I think we can help turn things around during this, this critical moment in history. Now, there's something that you didn't say explicitly, and in the book I think it goes unstated, though implied, the real important thing about the iceberg, from my point of view, is that we tend to focus on the part of it above the waterline, which in your iceberg diagram about Gandhi's work is the public witness, the outward work. But there just is no tip of the iceberg above the water without the great mass of the iceberg underneath, the part that provides the flotation, the steady base. Now, you don't say that explicitly in the book, but that was the implication, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah, and I'm glad that you internalized that intuitively. Yeah, I felt like the visual captures that and what, just what we know about icebergs, that that resides in us somewhere, that understanding that what's below the water is the most substantial and hidden aspect. You said it well. Thank you. <laughs> well, gee, maybe I should have been the co-editor of the book or something. <laughs> I'll keep you in mind for the next one. Okay. <laughs> I'll help out as I can. <laughs> Another thing that you point out, and I think it's radical in our society to consider this, although we've all heard the message one form or another, means equals ends. That's the formula. Means equals ends. And that seems to be fundamental to the whole thing. It's kind of like relativity is for Einstein. But for Gandhi, means equals ends is an absolutely fundamental principle. Talk about how that works in Gandhi's vision, and I think in your vision, and how that is different from how the world normally thinks about such things. Yeah, and you said it well, the means equals ends equation is an absolute for Gandhi, and really his whole philosophy hinges on it. If we don't include this part, the whole thing sort of falls apart. Gandhi taught that nonviolent outcomes cannot flow from violent motivations or approaches or tactics, so that if we're we're seeking things like reconciliation or peace or equality, freedom, transparency, dignity, respect, things like that, the way that we go about the struggle for those things needs to reflect those things. Dr. King said the exact same thing, you know, arguing that the ends were pre-existent in the means. If we want an apple tree, we don't plant a seed for a peach tree. 
right? If, if we want that apple tree, you need to have an apple seed. And that's basically means equals ends in a nutshell. So for Gandhi, you know, this had far-reaching implications for the work of leading his society to the extent that he did in the direction of freedom from empire. And this brings us to that word you mentioned before, Swaraj. And what he taught was that as soon as we as, as a people get our own houses in order in relation to nonviolence, in relation to the way that we live as a community, as a national family, once we get ourselves aligned with our deepest principles, he said, the British will actually pack up and go because we will no longer be an oppressible people when we have reclaimed our full stature as human beings. And that, I really believe, flows from his commitment to this means equals ends principle. He recognized that the agents of social change were individual people and that those people needed in their own lives to represent, to embody the outcome that they desired to see. And so this is why, for Gandhi, independence from Britain was always completely intertwined with the remaking of the Indian society from the inside out. So the uplift of women and the end of untouchability and Hindu-Muslim unity, all of those social assignments that were part of his constructive program were all about the means for him as they, as a nation, headed in the direction of sovereignty. This is really countercultural here in the United States context where we tend to look for a political solution first when we're faced with a societal dilemma. We might spend some time thinking about the constructive alternative that we might build. And few of us on rare occasions will ask ourselves, well, what about my own life in relation to this societal problem? How is this societal problem reflected in my own living, in my own thinking and doing? And for Gandhi, that was the key recognition that actually the way that we're living and thinking and doing has everything to do with these larger issues and problems that we see on the national scale or the societal scale. Yeah, it is a very radical proposition that he's making and that Dr. King was making. And in the end, for both of them, it didn't turn out to be a very popular way of framing things, means equals ends. And so I, I think we find that there's a small number of folks who are really ready for that kind of commitment. And the book that I've written is, for the most part, written for that small number of folks so that we can find each other and, I hope, band together and bring a contribution to this, this larger macro movement that we see forming at this time. Yeah, when I think about how our culture does not do means equals ends, I think of, for example, the war to end all wars. That doesn't make any sense at all if you accept that formula. Or putting poisons in the form of pesticides and such on our food crops doesn't make any sense if you think you get healthy food out of the poisonous, if you believe that means equals ends. The lack of belief in that principle is so deeply rooted in our society that we're often completely oblivious to the inconsistency and to the problems that come out of our system because of the lack of attention to the means and the ends. We sabotage ourselves by not having the means equal the ends. Yeah, I agree. And I think that when I take a step back from the book that I wrote, there's a way in which the book is all about this sort of holy grail of congruence, of bringing the means and our hoped-for ends into alignment. 
that really the, the whole Gandhian story, as I understand it, is about that, about that great assignment <laughs> to, to do just that. And as the vision you read points out, and throughout the book, you call it the domination system. And there's something called the great turning, which are essential views of what's happening and where we're headed. The domination system is called different things by different people in our society. Could you say what you're talking about when you use the term? Sure. And I'm borrowing that phrase from Walter Wink from his you know, highly respected trilogy. It's often called the Powers Trilogy. And what Wink says is this immense and extremely violent and deadly web of oppressive and destructive systems, you know, the different systems and also the attitudes and patterns that sort of serve those systems of domination. That entire web he refers to as the domination system. So this is really any force within our our human society that perpetuates violence, you know, in whatever form. So it includes the whole shebang. Whenever domination is present, that would be an arm of this system or sort of a tentacle of the, the hydra. And so I, I use that phrase with thanks to Walter Wink, you know, just for giving us something to call that immense system. And as you mentioned, sort of the on the other side is what I refer to as the great turning. And, and that also is a phrase borrowed from someone else, from Joanna Macy, who borrowed it from someone else herself. And it's it's becoming more and more commonly used. The great turning refers to this epochal shift. She talks about it as a shift that's as significant as the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution. And this is the shift from our current industrial growth society, which is so dependent on plunder of the earth and of human bodies, of poor people especially, the shift from that to a truly just and sustainable society. And so the great turning is held up as an antidote for this domination system and our collusion with it. As I was reading the book, I was definitely feeling the synchronicity in my life. Among other things, just two weekends ago, the Quaker meeting I'm a part of here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, we had a day-long workshop that was based on Joanna Macy's and Molly Brown's work, which is, I'd say, part of the work towards self-purification on the way to supporting the Great Turning. I wasn't the one who brought this forward, but this seems to be the time and place for such things to come to my attention, to our attention. And as you point out in the book, Chris, we need this supporting work to be done yesterday. It just can't come too soon. Again, folks, we're speaking with Chris Moore Bachman. His book that came out this past year is The Gandhian Iceberg, A Nonviolence Manifesto for the Age of the Great Turning. I'm kind of hopping and skipping around through the book, but this is a quick read of a book, an easy, fluid read, not laborious at all, in spite of the fact that the thoughts and the insights are so deep and so valuable. I think you'll really enjoy the book if you get a chance to pick it up. One other thing you do when you start out the book, and it's certainly a surprise to some at least, is that you label, I think, Gandhi's efforts as a failure. This doesn't surprise me because I'm aware, of course, that when he was assassinated in 1947, India fell into civil war between Hindus and Muslims, leading to the division of India and Pakistan. So there's a failure in Gandhi's efforts there. A bigger part that I had not been aware of, I learned about when I interviewed Jim Douglas, and I noticed he's one of the people who comments on your book. I was interviewing him about his book, Gandhi and the Unspeakable, 
where he points out that 20 years after Gandhi's assassination, India was ruled essentially by representatives of the right-wing faction of India's political landscape that had him killed. So this revolution of the Indian people was clearly not sustained in the way he had envisioned. What do you mean when you talk about his failure? Well, I would say that the label of failure is couched in sort of an admission of paradox that happens throughout the book. The failure actually, I think, is ours. By quoting a friend of mine who I interviewed when I was in India in 2005, he was the one who made this statement that Gandhi is our greatest failure. I quote this friend Anand, you know, at a few points in the book to kind of bring that thread back into the narrative. What Anand was saying when he made that statement was that if you look at all of Gandhi's principal goals, they just weren't reached. Hindu-Muslim unity, the end of untouchability, the uplift of women, revitalizing a human-scaled village-based economy, the spread of economic equality, the struggle for sobriety within the society. All of these things that Gandhi you know, was so consistently putting forward as the primary goals for the society, India is still struggling to achieve them. What I'm trying to get at with this exploration of Gandhi's, quote, failure is, uh, well, it has everything to do with the way we put prophets and heroes up on pedestals, right? That we can, we can look at Gandhi as the foremost leader that helped bring India to independence, that helped oust the British Empire through nonviolent means. And that's true enough to a point, you know, that he did that. Uh, he was a big part of at least that happening. But if we focus there, we lose sight of all these other aspects of Gandhi's work and what he called his society to do and what he calls us to do today. So I think there's a way in which focusing on Gandhi as a hero and a great success is our way of evading the assignment that he laid in front of us. And so I try to sort of turn the tables on that process by focusing on the ways in which Gandhi's goals weren't met. And it wasn't that he didn't meet them. It's that we haven't met them. His society didn't meet them during his time. And we still, as a society, haven't put into practice what he as a teacher was encouraging us to put into practice. So, yeah, I play with that concept of failure. And another sort of twist I throw in there is one that was introduced to me by another friend, Will Braun, who talks about this concept of holy failure, which is sort of another layer of the conversation where we're called to do what's right, regardless of whether it measures up to the success narrative of conventional society. You know, and I know in the Quaker tradition, this is a concept that's well known. The question is not whether or not you succeeded, but whether or not you were faithful, whether or not you did what you were called to do. And I think that's a very Gandhian impulse to follow what we know to be true, regardless of whether or not we're going to get what we want or what we or the society thinks looks like success. So that's another layer of failure that I explore in the book. And that's just one of the topics that Chris Moore Backman explores in his book, The Gandhian Iceberg. Chris is my guest today for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where you'll find 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download, further info about and links to our guests. So to track down this book, the link is 
GandhianIceberg.com. As I said, find it on NordenSpiritRadio.org along with a place to post comments about our programming and make our communication two-way. And of course, there's a donate button so you can support this full-time work, not supported by government or corporations, but by you, the listener. We're counting on you, but even more important is to support your local community radio station, both with your hands and your wallet. They are quite simply invaluable. So start there. We're talking now to Chris Moore-Backman over in Chico, California, me here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but the twain get to meet via Skype. Again, we're talking about his concept and book, The Gandhian Iceberg, and I want to jump right into the deep end, a primary topic of the book that I've soft-sold so far because it's a deeply uncomfortable concept for us to talk about, something that Gandhi calls self-purification. We're so privileged in the U.S., so accustomed to jumping right to the answer, the end point, without wading through the muck that stands on our path. And it's the vast proportion of the iceberg unseen under the water. And Gandhi teaches us that in order to do the real, good, transformative work, we have to self-purify and have swaraj, self-rule. This is not what activists like to do. They like to jump straight to the demonstrations, the witness, the nonviolent world changing. But first, Gandhi, and I think you, say that we've got to seriously deal with self-purification. When you're presenting a workshop, Chris, and this topic comes up, do people just walk out? <laughs> uh, no, people don't walk out. But as you've mentioned, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult pond to stick your toe in, let alone dive into I do want to just play with your question a little bit, which is to point out that the level of comfort and privilege that you describe for those of us in the U.S. does not apply to all of us in the U.S., though it, it does apply, I can say, pretty safely to the vast majority of folks that I spend time with in workshop settings talking about this stuff. And it is uncomfortable, and at the same time, people who find themselves coming to a workshop on integral nonviolence, and that's another phrase we could talk about, integral nonviolence being a corrective for the misused version of nonviolence as a word, you know, where people say, oh, nonviolence is basically a tactical decision to not use physical force in situations of conflict. The word nonviolence has devolved into that in the conventional sense. So I'm using this phrase, integral nonviolence, which a handful of other folks are beginning to use as well to describe this more holistic, comprehensive approach to nonviolence that Gandhi was modeling for us. Anyways, for those folks who would come into a workshop on integral nonviolence, they tend to be ready for something, if only on an intellectual level, but some of them tend to be ready for more than that too. So the folks who come in to the workshop are, are not going to turn right around and bolt through the door at the mention of self-purification. I think most of the folks that I end up with uh, in these workshop settings are ready for an exploration into this aspect. And I think change makers all over the U.S., even the most privileged of us, we know intuitively that we need to go there. We need to go to this area of self-purification if we're going to have any hope of turning this thing around. And again, just to remind listeners here that self-purification from a Gandhian perspective is not just a list of spiritual disciplines or what we might usually associate with spiritual disciplines, things like fasting and meditation, for example. Those, I would argue, from a Gandhian standpoint, are fuel 
for the work of self-purification. If you closely read Gandhi's own writings on the subject, more often than not, when he's describing self-purification, it has to do with a change in behavior in our daily life. So prayer, meditation, fasting, things of that nature, what I see when I look at Gandhi's own example, his own modeling, is that those were the things that rooted him internally. Those are the things that opened up his inner ears to what he calls the inner voice, where he heard the directions that he needed to follow in order to bring his principles into alignment with his practice. And so that work of bringing principle into alignment with practice is absolutely terrifying if we're truly honest with ourselves. And it's also absolutely exhilarating to picture, wow, what would it feel like? What would it be like to live a life where I felt that my principles and practice were congruent? You know, it's an amazing thing to ponder. And for those of us who have spent a good bit of time experimenting with this stuff of self-purification. We've had little tastes of it, you know? I'm sure you have, and I'm sure most, if not all, of our listeners have had tastes of what that's like. There's nothing like it. That's what Gandhi's pointing us to, is more and more of that good stuff. And one of the outcomes that we find when we begin to bring our principles into alignment with our practice is that we become more and more open to things that before would have seemed really radical. In my experience, we begin to also cross paths with more and more amazing human beings along the road. So it's a path that, yeah, it's terrifying and it's exhilarating both. And it was the hardest chapter in the book to write, I should say, this chapter about self-purification. I have a really dear friend, Katie Chandler, who I sent my first draft to, and she said, but Chris, (laughs) I know you, and you're not enlightened. (laughs) So you have to write this, you know, in such a way where people really understand that, you know, you're not writing from that vantage point as some kind of spiritual master. It was the most helpful advice. And so <laughs> as as you probably noticed, my first sentence of that chapter is, I'm not enlightened. <laughs> you know, like, let's be clear. Thanks, Katie. I'm writing this chapter from the perspective of someone who is struggling with this stuff as much as anybody and learning as much as I go along as anybody could falling down as much as anybody does, you know, all of that. And yet, I've had enough of a wrestling match with self-purification to know that, yeah, this is actually really empowering stuff. And like I said, it has brought me and and others who kind of go for it into connection with the most wonderful, amazing human beings who are also in the murk of, of trying to live into this. You didn't mention it just now, but early on you mentioned sobriety. And in the chapter on self-purification, you talk about control of the palate. And even more challenging for us, you talk about sex and more exactly stemming the sexual drive or actions. I remember in the epic movie, Gandhi, they include this bit where someone is asking Gandhi's wife about Gandhi's vow of chastity. And she has a bit of a sly smile when she says that for all the times he's vowed to stay chaste, each time he's failed so far. Is this chastity, which Gandhi advocated, is this Puritanism in the Indian context? I'm reaching back here in history when the Puritans and Quakers were part of founding this country. And those 
People sometimes confuse the two groups. There were significant differences, including their approaches to sex. I'm thinking that the attitude towards sex you're talking about in the book might be closer to the Quaker ideal and less so to the Puritan ideal. I would agree. And I I think from my perspective as someone who's spent a lot of time reading, studying, and my own life trying to make sense of Gandhi's teaching, I think the thing that's most helpful to focus in on when it comes to training the senses, which would be inclusive of Gandhi's commitment to celibacy or control of the palate, that what he was after was a harnessing of energy, a harnessing of intention, so that he could place as much energy and intention in the direction of what he held to be his ultimate goal. And so for him, brahmacharya, the commitment to celibacy, or control of the palate, or I also spent a little bit of time talking about his efforts to harness the energy of his anger, for example, that all of these are examples of Gandhi trying to tap into this reservoir of spiritual vitality and to become the master of it so that he could direct all of that energy towards his goal, which was service, which was the work of Sarvodaya, of helping to bring about the uplift of all beings. Now, from my perspective and in my experience, I have found that the harnessing of energy can happen in different ways than Gandhi discovered in his own life. And I, I do believe that there's going to be variation here. I do honestly feel that some people are called to celibacy, that that's a true leading of the spirit for certain individuals. And I think that's wonderful for those who feel a genuine call to that. I also feel that there are folks who are not called in that direction, who are called to experience the you know, fullness of their sensuality and sexuality and to be householders with families, you know, to have children and to have that be part of their spiritual journey and walk, and that that doesn't necessarily veer them off course in terms of their dharma, of their spiritual path. But I think that the important piece for me has been to to not just sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater with Gandhi's teaching here, that even if we don't feel called to celibacy doesn't mean that we should just sort of say, oh, well, he didn't have anything to teach me with regards to this harnessing of energy piece. I think he had a lot to teach us about it and that our commitment to doing that ourselves is key, especially in this time when we live in such a hyper-technological and hyper-industrial, hyper-consumerist society where we're inundated constantly with things that want to and that often do steal away our spiritual vitality and energy and intention. So my conversation about sobriety was within that larger context of what are the ways, the multitude of ways that our own spiritual vitality is being sapped today. And I speak about addiction in a much broader sense than folks usually do. I'm not just speaking about particular substances that we tend to label addictive, but our addiction to technology today, I feel like, is as important, if not more important for us to battle with than any other addiction. So anyways, I hope that helps kind of give you a sense of where I'm at in relation to Gandhi's teaching on the subject. And it's a, it's a really fascinating place. And of course, it's a place where Gandhi's shadow side in terms of his own experiments with brahmacharya come in. That's not something I delve into deeply in the book, because my purpose in the book is for us to harvest as much as we possibly can to put into use in our own lives right now in direct service of the great turning. So I don't get into the nuances of Gandhi's kind of strange experiments in his sexuality and so forth that a lot of authors do. 
And there's plenty of that out there for those who have an interest. But I'm, I'm worried some that we get distracted from really mining the riches of his teaching. I'm not arguing for Gandhi as a guru in this book, and I'm not looking for a guru myself in Gandhi. What I see in him is a person who made an incredible exploration of this thing, nonviolence, and he made amazing discoveries there that can serve us right here, right now, in concrete work to bring about the great turning. So that's where my focus really lies. Yes, and again, since this is Spirit in Action, what we are focusing on is transforming the world. How do we heal the world? How do we bring about the great turning in terms of the phrase you use? I did wonder if there's a particular reason you focused so heavily on Gandhi, not exclusively, of course, because you certainly talk about Martin Luther King Jr., for example, as well as other examples. Was there a particular reason Gandhi should be so singled out? Was he so foundational for these ideas of integral nonviolence that he's head and shoulders above the rest, obviously the one to focus on? Well, for me, there is. Gandhi is the teacher that introduced me to this integral understanding of nonviolence. And there's a way in which I do think that if you want to look at integral nonviolence, at this comprehensive understanding of nonviolence as an expression that's personal, it has to do with the individual and something deeply transformative and radical happening at the individual level, moving from there out into the society, into the community, and then also inclusive of this aspect of head-on, love-in-action confrontation with the forces of empire and domination. If you're going to investigate nonviolence with that sort of holistic lens, you're going to end up with Gandhi (laughs) at some point along the way. It happens to be where I started. I was introduced to Gandhi when I was an undergraduate uh, university at Berkeley with Michael Nagler. And so Gandhi was where I was kind of set on my own journey with this stuff. And so for me as an author, it makes perfect sense for me to delve in here. And at this point in my life, you know, 20 years after being introduced to Gandhi, there is a sense in which I'm paying tribute to this particular teacher. But as you mentioned, I spent quite a bit of time talking about King and the civil rights chapter of the African-American freedom movement. This three-part approach is absolutely alive and well within that story of the civil rights movement, as it's come to be called. And it's absolutely alive in a lot of other struggles. But Gandhi is the one who I feel like was most systematic in his description of these three elements and most systematic in the way he employed them. So, yeah, that's why the focus is predominantly on Gandhi's teaching. Well, since I know, Chris, that you did a lot of time on the Quaker benches, I know that you're pretty familiar with Quaker practices and history, and I'm pretty sure you're familiar with John Woolman and his work against slavery back in the 1700s. But as you were going through the description of the many elements and approaches of Gandhi's programs and works, I couldn't help but think of John Woolman and the incredible effect he had specifically on Quakers. Gandhi sought to change the people of India, and John Woolman worked to transform Quakers. I'm assuming many listeners have no idea who he is, but I couldn't help but notice the parallels of what Woolman did with what Gandhi did 150 years later. In so many ways, it's the same preparation, principles, and approach. 
at the point that woman was around, Quakers were a significant and influential portion of the population. And so what happened with them had major effects on the course of our society. And since woman's most noted work was about Quakers and slavery, that affected things like abolition and the Underground Railroad and other changes. Woman did a whole lot of personal preparation, stuff that Gandhi calls self-purification, and spread that among his co-religionists, and his work was very clearly integral nonviolence. For example, when he would confront Quaker slave owners, rather than lecture them, he showed compassion and vulnerability. There was no us-versus-you dynamic, and rather like Gandhi did, John Woolman gave up his work as a merchant, finding that it led to compromise with his values, but worked instead as a tailor, which I think parallels Gandhi's leaving the law practice and adding spinning and homemade cloth as part of his practical program. They are alike in so many ways, maybe including that Woolman was a failure as far as the full society is concerned, although he was key in leading all the Quakers to abandon and equally important to encourage many Quakers to become abolitionist activists in our society as a whole, including as part of the Underground Railroad. And there are more parallels. Neither Gandhi or Woolman were one-issue folks, and John Woolman has some writings, for example, about our economic system that are so insightful, so way ahead of their time, like one of his quotes which addresses the link between our economics and how this connects with what we now call the military-industrial complex and maybe the nomination system. Woolman wrote, May we look upon our treasure, the furniture of our houses and our garments, and try to discover whether the seeds of war have nourishment in these, our possessions. Given all the parallels with Woolman's happening on this continent, I was wondering if you had considered including his example in the book, or maybe you thought it would be just too out of step with the current American context. Well, listening to your description, I regret that I didn't. Yeah, I mean, I drew such amazing inspiration from Woolman's journal. The piece that I would highlight, you know, just to add to what you shared about Woolman's story and his witness, was this piece of alignment at the personal level. John Woolman's journal there, these incredible stories of his own wrestling match with internally about his own scruples about his behavior, his participation in systems of domination. Like woman's choice of undyed cloth because black coloring for cloth was indigo typically raised by slave labor. Like undyed cloth, I, I know there's, the, there's that scene where he's, I believe, a guest in someone's home and they bring him water in a silver goblet and he recognizes that the silver has been mined by oppressed people. And with tears, he goes to the host and says, I'm sorry, but I, I can't use this vessel. Those sorts of moments where you see him wrestling at the most personal level with his participation in ways that I think we might think, oh, well, that's, you know, taking it too far. But in Woolman, we recognize that what's happening for him in, at the level of his heart, that deep self-transformation, what Gandhi called self-purification, is not separate from the vast energy and power that he brings to his anti-slavery work. Those things are absolutely woven together. And that, to me, is deeply inspiring. Yeah, I wish that I had brought Woolman into the narrative. You know, now that you mention it, he certainly has been a personal hero of mine, 
the other piece that came to mind as I was listening to you was this, you know, what you mentioned, that from some vantage points you might say he was a failure. John Woolman never saw the end of slavery himself. He died well before that came about, but there's no way <laughs> that we can leave him out of that eventuality. He was part of that. He was such an important part of the shift that happened within the Quaker community. And when Quakerism in the U.S. gave up slavery, that was one of those stepping stones that was absolutely crucial for the nation, you know, which eventually was able to move beyond that, at least to the extent that we have. The new Jim Crow is evidence that we have a long way to go. But nonetheless, those strides were carried out by people like John Woolman, who very few today speak about. So thanks for bringing him into the conversation. Well, you're welcome. Let's jump to a few more topics, Chris. And folks, this is Chris Moore-Backman I'm speaking with, author of the book, The Gandhian Iceberg, a nonviolence manifesto for the age of the great turning, which came out last year. He's over in Chico, California. And the website you'll want to check out is gandhianiceberg.com. There's a link on nordenspiritradio.org, of course. One thing you share in the book that I was initially disappointed by, but then upon reflection decided I needed to sit with a bit, was commentary about the Occupy movement. I must confess that I was very enthusiastic about Occupy when it emerged. So exciting to see this real people's movement with lots of youth energy. I was thrilled but you describe your own experience walking into one of the very early organizing meetings in Chico, seeing the slogan, we are the 99%, and feeling disappointed and concluding that it was perhaps short-sighted, this 99% idea, and that Occupy was not the place for you. Could you talk about your experience and reaction? What's that about? I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to think of it as short-sightedness. As I mentioned in my description of my relationship with Occupy, I experienced some heartbreak there of feeling that it didn't have my name on it, you know, to participate in Occupy, at least in a direct kind of wholehearted plunge. There was so much that Occupy did, and, and the reverberations continue to today, really positive reverberations. But my experience of walking into that room here in Chico is actually the Chico Peace and Justice Center where, as Occupy was beginning, there was an organizing meeting there. And I walked in and was handed this flyer, and at the top of it I saw, we are the 99%. And as someone who has been steeped in this integral approach, the alarm bells just went off so immediately and so loudly of, okay, right there, the message embedded in the message is us versus them. I immediately began to think, well, who are these 1% that we are not? And is this actually a struggle that's somehow putting out the idea that the 98th percentile is somehow in right relationship with the poor or with the earth? <laughs> or, you know, or the 97th or the 96th or the 57th or the 56th percentile? You know, just, it just made me feel like, whoa, there are so many levels in, in which I'm not comfortable with this. And also thinking about the global context of, you know, within the global context, we are not the 99% here in the U.S., you know, as a national family. And I just, I just felt so sort of put off by those warning bells that I knew that I couldn't engage in a way I might otherwise have really loved to. And that's not to say, again, that I didn't recognize the wonderful energy that was set in motion and the conversations that, wow, that Occupy ignited. It was really important. 
But I do think that that 99% mentality, the we are the 99% mentality, is something that we really need to look at. There's a new organization in the works that's led predominantly by folks of color, organizers of color, most of them young, in their 20s and 30s. And I love the name of their organization. It's called All of Us. In the book, I talk about another organization called All of Us or None, who works on issues for formerly incarcerated and convicted folks. And feeling like that, to me, is, is a much more inspiring and just resonant kind of message that the folks that we characterize as the one percenters, they're members of our family, you know. And if we don't extend our love and invitation to them, I think we're going to pay for that down the line. So, yeah, I didn't feel that I could join forces with that movement. As I mentioned in the book, I did offer up a couple of workshops to the Chico Occupy community during that time, and I hope it was of some help. I definitely cheered from the sidelines, but, yeah, I just I just couldn't bring myself to get with the campaign or movement that right from the get-go kind of placed division front and center. I'm making an effort at when I share with people about the book and about integral nonviolence that I'm not coming at this from an attitude of I've got the answer. What I know to be true for myself is that this integral nonviolence approach really sings for me. It touches me and calls me at a very deep spiritual level. And I, I've known for a long time that my destiny is somehow entwined with this, right? And I feel like we're at a point right now where all of us need to be brutally honest with ourselves about what it is that makes us tick in that way, what it is that makes us feel like we're in alignment with our path, with our way, and we need to go for it. Like, this is a time for that. And so the book was written for people who resonate with this approach so we can start to first find each other and then begin to understand what it is, what is this gift that we have to bring, this special contribution that we have to make to the movement of movements, to this shift that we're calling the great turning, and then begin bringing it with our whole selves. Saying that, I feel, you know, this deep hope that other people who see things differently will do the same, you know, in their own way so that they bring their whole contribution. I do have a trust that as we bring this gift, more and more people will be drawn by what we're doing. And I think that Gandhi's campaign in India, his his work in India, showed that to be true. People are drawn by power and beauty and community. And, and I think that this integral nonviolence approach, the more we bring it, the more people will be pulled in gravitationally to become part of that. I'm excited about that. And again, it's not to say that that's going to be the way or the only answer to our dilemma, but I do think it's one essential piece of it. Right now, Chris, I'm feeling some real sadness because there's so much more that I want to talk to you about, and we just don't have the time that it would take to tackle all of the subjects in your book brought up for me. Already, I'm sure that there are some things that we talked about that won't fit into our broadcast. So listeners will have to go to the NordenSpiritRadio.org website and look for the bonus excerpts connected with this program. There are some real gems they'll find there. But if we had the time, I would talk to you about a thing called constructive program, and we'd talk about atonement and reparations, we discussed the three groups that you see as essential for the movement of movements, what we need to make this revolution work. I have this question about why nationality is such an important classification for identity as seen by Gandhi and maybe you, because I realize that the grouping 
could be by race or by gender or by religion or something else as well. Why nationality? We'd discuss that, and we'd look at the big question that you address in the book about the role of integral violence, and if it's enough, under your topic, what about Hitler? We'd discuss that, but we just don't have the time. So I'm feeling very sad that we can't fit in all that stuff, but I'm also feeling grateful. And first of all, to Rich Van Dellen, who pointed me in your direction and, in fact, mailed me his copy of the book. Thank you to Rich. And I'm thankful to Catherine Thomas, who provided production assistance on today's program. And, of course, I'm deeply thankful to you, Chris, for your decades of dedicated work for social change and betterment and for the in-depth study that makes a book like The Gandhian Iceberg, a Nonviolence Manifesto for the Age of the Great Turning, possible. I really think people will be greatly enriched if they get a hold of the book and read it. It will likely revolutionize their way of thinking. And I'd love to spend time talking with you, Chris, about your choice of radically changing the way you live, functioning by candlelight instead of electric lights, We've really just scratched the surface, but then most of it is below the surface with the rest of that Gandhian iceberg, of course. <laughs> so thank you so much, Chris, for your work, your vision, your faithfulness, your book, and for bringing all of that with you for today's visit. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Mark. And I do want to just hold up also my appreciation for your work and what an important part of the constructive program alternative media is right now. And so thanks for bringing so much positive and constructive learning into people's lives. And thanks for having me on today. You can track down Chris Moore Backman and the Gandhian Iceberg via his website, GandhianIceberg.com. I recommend it highly. And maybe you want to join in as one of the 78 or other parts of the revolution he talks about. Find the link on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice